Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In some places, the prairie dog is shot as a pest. In southern Utah, the Utah prairie dog is protected as a threatened species under the Endangered Species Act. That makes some residents angry. Here's what Pacific Legal Foundation attorney Jonathan Wood recently said. He's representing an organization called People for the Ethical Treatment of Property Owners. Uh, he says that residents of southwestern Utah are held hostage to a species that has become an out-of-control pest. Out-of-control pest or deserving of protection under the Endangered Species Act. Prairie Dog, that's second half of the program today. We'll be talking about StoryCorps' visit to St. George in the first half of the program with UPR Interim General Manager Carrie Bringher. She has some audio from her recent trip to southern Utah. You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495 following the news. Support for Access Utah comes from Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Thank you for joining me today. In some places, the prairie dog is shot as a pest, uh, legally so. In southwestern Utah, the Utah prairie dog is protected as a threatened species under the Endangered Species Act. You would get in trouble if you shot one of these dogs. Many in southwestern Utah want to do just such a thing. Pacific Legal Foundation attorney Jonathan Wood, representing some landowners, uh, recently uh, said that the residents of southwestern Utah are held hostage to a species that has become an out-of-control pest. As an example, uh, they have burrowed into the Paragona Cemetery, and they've also burrowed into parts of the Parowan Airport. We'll be talking about uh, how do you balance uh, protection of a species with property owner rights with a couple of guests in the second half of the program, Utah Prairie Dog Recovery Implementation Program Director Bill Branham and uh, Cedar City business owner and landowner Bruce Hughes. In the first half of the program, we welcome in uh, Utah Public Radio News Director and General Manager Carrie Bringhurst. We want to talk about StoryCorps, and you were recently in southern Utah. Yeah, a little less controversial than the prairie dog issue that residents in southern Utah are facing. In fact, this is a great opportunity to share history, to share memories, to share thought. This project uh, is the brainchild of David Isay, uh, the StoryCorps project, where he wanted people to have an opportunity to stop and listen and to share memories and thoughts. Uh, Really, listening was the main subject. Uh, You talk about interactions that you might have with other people. Do we really listen? Do we listen to the stories? And, And beyond that, do we capture those stories for those who will be here after we're gone. So that is the basic concept. Uh, We had David Isay on our Access Utah program just a few weeks ago um, in a precursor to the fact that the mobile booth is now in St. George. You can drive by. You'll see it there at the town square in the parking lot of the LDS Tabernacle. And um, you're right. I was there on the opening day, which featured some of the Ironman participants there in St. George during the 70.3 race. And we're going to be speaking with some of those that uh, shared their thoughts, their stories, their memories during the StoryCorps opportunity. By the way, it's not too late, Tom. People can still sign up for that. And how do you sign up? The the best way to do that is to go to our website at upr.org. Do you have the number there handy? I do. Um, There's a number we can also have you call, and you can sign up as early as today. The number is 1-800-850-4406. I'll repeat that, 1-800-850-4406, and uh, you can reserve your time in the StoryCorps booth there. Now, as people are making reservations, one of the um, questions that we had is, is this a a service that, that... will cost you money. Um, no, this is a free service. Of course, they are nonprofit, so they do take donations. But in order to reserve online, you do have to give a credit card. Uh, they do that to help reserve the spot, uh, but you will not be charged unless you don't show up. So you do want to cancel your reservation if you're not going. But there is not a charge, and really an easier way might be to call that number that, that Tom just gave to you. Of course, we encourage anyone from outside uh, the state of Utah, whether you're living in Nevada, maybe you live in the Beaver Dam area, to come by the facility there. And if you're from northern Utah and you're traveling to southern Utah, another opportunity. I know many are taking family vacations this time Mm -hmm. of year. What a great way to um, share those memories. Maybe you want to talk about that particular weekend you just spent at Zion National Park 
Or I know on Mother's Day, there were several families that uh, took the opportunity to take their mothers into the booth and share some memories that they wanted to keep because these will be archived in the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Let's hear some uh, tape from that my interview with David Isay from a few weeks ago. He's he's uh, and of course you probably know what StoryCorps is all about for those but for those who don't. Here's the founder of StoryCorps David Isay explaining what it's all about. Very simple idea. We opened about nine and a half years ago in Grand Central Terminal. We put a booth there where you can bring anyone who you want to honor by listening to their story. It could be your parent, your sister, uh, grandparent, friend. You come to StoryCorps, you're met by a trained facilitator who brings you inside this booth, which is designed as kind of a sacred space, lights are low, very cozy, door shuts, and you're in this soundproof space like a, like a recording studio. Um, and uh, you sit across from, say, your grandmother for 40 minutes, the facilitators in one corner in front of a couple of CD burners, and people have a conversation for 40 minutes. And many people think of it as if I had 40 minutes left to live, what would I say to this person who's, who's so important to me? And people often bring someone who's deeply important in their life, who they want to honor by listening to their story. At the end of the 40 minutes, you get a CD, um, and another one stays with StoryCorps and goes to the Library of Congress. So your great, 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 great grandkids and can someday get to know your grandmother through her voice and story. So it's a, it's a very simple idea. Of course, there are excerpts that are played on Morning Edition on Fridays, and um, we have books, and we now have animations that you can find on our website and on YouTube. Um, but, you know, the core ideas of StoryCorps are, you know, very much in line with the core ideas of public broadcasting, the idea that um, that uh, of, of the importance of listening and respecting other people's stories, the idea that, um, particularly in StoryCorps, that you can find wisdom and poetry and grace and just incredible beauty in the stories of people all around you, and you take the time to listen. So it's very much a project about listening and recognizing that everybody's story and everybody's life matters equally. That's David Isay, founder of StoryCorps, just setting up what the project is. Uh, by the way, Carrie, the, the StoryCorps trailer doesn't come around all that often. It was seven or eight years ago that Utah Public Radio brought StoryCorps to Logan, now in St. George. And uh, the, the slots are you know being filled pretty good, but we'd like to fill all of them, and that's part of what we're doing today. Yeah, and, and I think um, more than anything, the StoryCorps crew and the facilitators, we're going to meet them in, in just a few minutes feel strongly that um, they want people to have this opportunity. They don't want the slots to be wasted because they know that's another story untold. And uh, I had an opportunity to meet with the facilitators. They travel throughout the country, and right now there is only one StoryCorps mobile booth on the road, So, and and it's in St. George. All right, we've got it. And the facilitators there are are, um, part of the magic of what happens in StoryCorps. We're going to first meet Leslie Dean. She is from Aurora, Ohio. She shares what she's enjoyed most these past 10 months as a member of the Mobile Booth team. I think just the opportunity to live in so many diverse cities throughout the U.S. and the people that I've met from all walks of life and all backgrounds um, and what I've learned from hearing about their lives and their experiences. Um, I think as many uh, sad and disheartening things we hear, we also hear um, very happy and encouraging moments between two people who come in and learn something about another and share a moment um, that I'm, you know, honored to be a part of. Um, I've been working for StoryCorps for about 10 months, um, and about most of those months have been on the road, probably about seven months. So I started in Detroit. I went to Chicago. Um, then I went to South Texas, McAllen, Texas, um, Santa Fe, New Mexico, and most recently Phoenix, Arizona. And now we're here in St. George. I've been to um, Park City um, on vacation, but that's it. <laughs> we drove here from Las Vegas, and part of that drive was really scenic and beautiful. And I just thought that it was so interesting how it's like the mesas, but then there's trees and there's green, and it's just a different sort of landscape than anywhere I've ever been, I think. Um, my name is Olivia Cueva, um, and I am a mobile facilitator here along with Leslie and Lisa. I'm originally from Berkeley, California, um, but I've spent the past five years living in Brooklyn, New York, where StoryCorps headquarters are. 
I was living in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, and my landlord, um, in conversation with him, telling him that I was interested in radio and recording stories, um, he actually told me about the Manhattan, Lower Manhattan Story Booth, um, and said that I should check them out. Um, and that's how I heard about StoryCorps. I downloaded the podcast and started listening, um, and uh, fresh out of college, I applied for an internship with the mobile department. I really uh, hope to uh, really engage with different outreach organizations that we've reached out to, so different local community organizations. Um, I mean, there's a lot, a lot to learn from this experience, definitely. Um, And I think so far, I've really been able to kind of learn about a city through stories from the people who live in that city and know that city the best. Um, And so you get to kind of get, you know, a really good kind of holistic picture of a place Um, and you learn about little secret things that you wouldn't know about Um, so that has been a very very good experience for myself as well I'm also young I'm 24 years old um, and listening to stories of about people who you know about love you know or about um, you know their education I, I just I just feel like I learned so much on that level as well through people's stories and through the lives they've lived. Little advice here and there. I feel like there are similarities in every story that people share, even if it, you know, people live on, you know, the opposite side of the country. Um, there still are some, are like similar shared human experiences that we all share. My name is Lisa Polito. I'm the site supervisor for the mobile tour. Well, you'll see a very bright and shiny Airstream trailer with the orange lettering StoryCorps logo across the side. And we have a table and chairs outside and participants generally take a moment, have a seat at the table and start their paperwork. And the paperwork is really pretty simple and straightforward. It's a data sheet that identifies the participants and that information would accompany the archived recording and photographs in the Library of Congress archive and give information about the participants so that as an oral history archive, that information is useful to researchers in the future and also for future generations um, who might be related to or know the participants. It's a way for their recording to be found and identified. So we get a little bit of information from them on these data sheets. They fill out their data sheets and then they come in through the front door. They get to see the front part of the trailer where we have a table and a couple of um, bench seats where we sit with our laptop computers and do our databasing after the participants are gone and we take their information and put it in the computer. Um, They come here through the entryway and we always tell them to watch their step at each of the doorways. There's a double set of doors that lead us into the recording area. So we come in this way and we come on in here and we shut the outer door. And then we shut our second door. And now we're in the booth and you can hear the the change in sound as soon as we're shut into the recording area. And actually, if we go ahead and sit down here at the at the table. So this is the table where participants would sit. They sit across the table from one another. The table's about 30 inches wide. It's pretty intimate. You're really close to the other person. Um, We do dim the lighting. Let me dim the lights so you can see what it's like. So we just have these spotlights on over the table. And one of the things that that does for participants is draws attention away from the microphone being right in front of you. For folks who aren't accustomed to being interviewed and being recorded, that microphone can be a little intimidating. So it makes a nice warm environment in here. Um, We also keep our recording equipment in the cabinet over there. Facilitator sits uh, just inside the door at the, the smaller table, monitors the sound on the mixer that's over here, um, and then can also see the recording equipment that's in the cabinet. And you can see the longer you sit here this close together, looking at one another across the table, it really draws participants 
into the intimacy of the moment and into the intimacy of the conversation. Um, And that's really what we hope to do is help people have an intimate conversation. And often, even people who've known each other their whole lives, parents and adult children, spouses, when they sit down in this space with this kind of focused attention on storytelling and listening, they're always surprised, it seems like, when they leave, even when they've come in knowing what they were going to talk about. Um, There's something about the space and being in this space that really sparks some magic. Uh, Even when they're talking about some kind of hard things and sad things, I think uh, people are pleasantly surprised with the experience that they have once they come into the booth. So that was Lisa Patillo, Polito, excuse me. Uh, she's our main facilitator there at the StoryCorps booth. We also met Leslie Dean and Olivia Guava, uh, Guava, and they are our facilitators. So we kind of take claim to them as, as our UPR family now. Uh, they're spending the month with us there in St. George and uh, great representatives of the StoryCorps project. And as you heard, Tom, they spend a lot of time on the road. They live in dormitories at some point. Um, sometimes they just have a little microwave that they use to prepare their meals. It is definitely a life on the road. But you heard that they really enjoy the fact that they get to uh, meet people from all over the country. They've been most recently in Las Vegas. They'll be heading to Boise the 1st of June. Uh, and I asked David Isay when I interviewed him, I was curious about, you know, what's the effect of, of being a facilitator? You go on the road for a year or two, and all day long you listen to stories. Um, and he said that they come away uh, being more hopeful about humanity. They come away with uh, optimistic about people because even though you hear some sad stories, um, the, the, you you come away feeling that people are essentially good. You know, and I, I think um, really they set the limit of a year for a reason because you are taking in all of this information. And I know some days uh, they do have to decompress because some of the mm-hmm. stories are very telling. And this is an opportunity for uh, people to share experiences about some very personal, intimate matters in their lives. And, you know, it's up to those who record whether or not they want those stories shared. And then um, if, if they decide that it might be something that would be of interest, maybe helpful to the public, then they give permission for NPR or UPR in this case as well to uh, to produce those segments, and we will be airing those throughout this next year. We'll have a lot of stories from southern Utah, some of them dealing with uh, some of the uh, park areas, uh, experiences, memories they have, others doing dealing with uh, residents whose uh, forebearers settled the areas in southern Utah. Uh, we also have some that have left the polygamist communities that have recorded at the StoryCorps booth, and others who are victims of the downwind, uh, the testing in Nevada. So some very compelling stories we can look forward to this next year because of the StoryCorps experience in southern Utah. So let me give you the number. If you're interested in recording your story, go in with a friend or family member and, and record your story. Have that archived in the Library of Congress. If you uh, feel that, that that's something that uh, you would give permission to be aired. You can sign that permission, and perhaps your story or an excerpt from that will be heard on Utah Public Radio. And, of course, you get the, the CD for your own uh, use in your family family's use, and that, that'll be a treasure. And there are slots available at the StoryCorps booth in St. George, and they'll be there till June 1st, I believe. So the number is 1-800-850-4406, 1-800-850-4406. And, Carrie, we have a special event coming up this week. We do. Um, actually, I'm headed to southern Utah today, along with many of our staff and crew here at Utah Public Radio. Uh, We want to thank those who have helped to make the StoryCorps booth a possibility in southern Utah. You know, this takes a lot of planning, a lot of effort and organization, and we have met some great friends in southern Utah. Uh, We have 
those who, who work for St. George City who have made the uh, facility available. They're paying for all the power to help make sure that we can run the recording, recording equipment. And the LDS Church has donated the property site next to the tabernacle there where we're parked for the entire month. And we've also uh, received a lot of support from Dixie Regional Medical Center. They'll be uh, sponsoring the produced pieces during this next year. So they're making that recording available to us. And, and they're doing kind of an interesting thing. They're celebrating 100 years this year. And so they are going to be having um, employees of the hospital or those who have been uh, patients at the hospital will be recording some of their experiences as they've seen things change in the medical industry and and now that uh, Dixie Regional Medical Center is celebrating their 100 years. So we will be holding a reception Thursday evening. It's open to the community. It will be held at the Riverwalk Grill. Chef Amy there is going to prepare some lovely, lovely hors d'oeuvres and um, other reception dishes for us to enjoy. And then we'll have a no-host dinner following that. But if you can join us at 630 at the Riverwalk Grill, that's in Sun River. They're um, just to the south of St. George area. We'd love to have you join us. We do need to hear from you, though. Uh, You can call us here at the studios at 800-826-1495 and make your reservation, or you can go to our website, and there are more details there. But what a a great time for us to gather with our friends there in southern Utah and celebrate StoryCorps. Our facilitators will be there so they can share some of their experiences as they've journeyed throughout the country as part of the StoryCorps uh, booth facilitators. And as you mentioned, Tom, I was there the opening day. It was a huge day. The Ironman 70.3 event was taking place in St. George. And among guests that we um, had at the StoryCorps booth was Fireman Rob. Now, Fireman Rob shared his story about an experience he had um, serving as a firefighter from Wisconsin. He decided to uh, head to New York, Ground Zero, on 9-11 to help with the rescue efforts and spent eight, eight days there. And following that, uh, developed a true love for rescuing, as he had already had, but decided to uh, support firefighters who were lost in not only that incident, but who also suffer from um, cases of cancer. Uh, There's an increased incident of cancer rates among firefighters throughout the nation. So as part of a year's journey, he spent the past year uh, competing in Ironman competitions wearing his fire gear. Now, I held that bag. It was way, it was at least weighing more than 50 pounds. And he wears that gear as he's running in temperatures, as you can imagine, in southern Utah, can reach near 100 degrees. And last year's competition, uh, the waves um, at the reservoir there were five feet high. Now, he doesn't wear the the gear while he's swimming because of safety reasons, but he wears the hat and everything. So he was among uh, the first to be interviewed in the StoryCorps booth. Uh, But the very first to be interviewed at the StoryCorps booth on May 2nd was uh, the mayor of of St. George, Daniel MacArthur, and his wife, Bunny. They were the first to interview one another during our stop in St. George. Well, it's easy for me to talk about my family. Kind of fun for me because I'm a missionary over the Family Search Library right now, and so I see the importance of recording your history. Uh, I wish more of my ancestors would have written more or or something left more information about them because it's hard to find them now and it's hard to know their stories. You really have to dig for them. So I think it's really, really important to leave your uh, story for your progenitors so they will know what you were like and what what things were like when uh, you were around. And, and it's, it's you know it's good to know what your family has done and what their what your history is. Uh, the story that we talked about is how we met in Dixie here because Bunny come down was a the youngest of three daughters, uh, her older sister, one of them is 20-something years older, 22 years older, and the next one's 12 years older, so she's kind of like an only child and uh, grew up. And the others got married in high school before they even graduated, and so uh, here she come down, her uh, apple of her dad's eye, uh, hope that here's you're going to have a college graduate because she had a scholarship. She comes down here and meets me. But we've known each other a lot longer than our than we actually knew our families before that. I mean, 43 years, and we, we were 20. I was 21, and Bunny was, uh, or was I 22? 23, and I was 19. Oh, 23 and 19, <laughs> see? That's what I say. So uh, we, I, I refer to that quite often. You know, you've known me longer than you knew your parents. We've been together. Yeah, so it's fun. And 
uh, my boyfriends were dating her girlfriends and uh, it, uh, that, that were happened to be dorm, dorm roommates for her. And uh, they needed my vehicle and to, to get to the Lion's Lodge to have a dance through the mud. And we had a Jeep and a, and a camper that we could all go in all together. My dad had made one to pick me up in the mission field. And uh, so uh, they asked me and I asked her. The next day I waited outside to ask them if they wanted a ride to college in my 1966 Chevrolet two-door Impala. Nice car. And uh, so I waited and, and uh, as she come down the with her girlfriends I asked them if they wanted a ride and they climbed in the car and Bunny got her snagged her nylons on my car and we've been hooked ever since. <laughs> True story. <laughs> yeah it was fun. Good memories. <laughs> <laughs> so you know though but but as Bunny said I I think uh, recording our story I'd love to have heard uh, some of my progenitors tell their story in their own voice because even today, as we look face-to-face, sometimes we don't see the face of the other person. If we can hear their voice and see either the enthusiasm or the excitement or the things that they had in their life, because it's something that we, we don't know, but as we see that, whether it's family history or somewhere else, I think this is a, a great medium where people can actually come and, and tell a story or maybe something significant in their life that as it's archived and somebody looks back, and who knows, it's, it's kind of like that little poem that my mother always said, <laughs> says you never know when someone may catch a dream from you you never know when a little word or something you may do may open up the windows of a mind that seats the light the way you live may not matter at all but then again it might and just in case it could be that another's life through you might possibly change for the better with a broader and brighter view it seems it may be worth a try at pointing the way to the light. the way you live may not matter at all but then again it might you know, we, we never know how we affect other people, and we do every day, and hopefully they catch a dream from you. And listening to the stories, uh, they can do that. And so this is an opportunity for people to do that, that who knows when the future, or right now, that may turn on the light or, or help someone through a tough time in their life, because we never know what other people are going through. And uh, sometimes it's, it's, it's not a pleasant thing, and they just need a pick-me-up and that might be a pick-me-up look this person had that kind of an experience you know life is worth it uh, I'm not going to uh, you know mess my life up that person made it through it I can too That was Mayor Daniel MacArthur and his wife, Bunny. They were the first to record in the StoryCorps booth. And I was telling Tom during the break, I haven't been to an event where Mayor MacArthur's spoken where he hasn't shared a poem, but I was surprised to learn he didn't do it in the StoryCorps booth. Well, he should have. Well, we have it here now. So (laughs) So you can tell they're very passionate about. And and that's, Bunny was very reserved about going in, wasn't sure about doing it. But when people come out, they are... um, they're, they're believers in, in, in sharing a story. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just a wonderful opportunity to have your story um, shared at the uh, Library of Congress. It'll be archived there. And, of course, in your family archives, you get a CD, a couple of CDs, I think, uh, out of this. And uh, if you allow it, uh, your story, a portion of that could be broadcast on Utah Public Radio will be the, the next year. We'll, mm-hmm. be, we'll be broadcasting these stories. And I think we all want to be remembered. We all want to feel that we matter. And we all want to be listened to. And all of those happen at the StoryCorps booth. And so StoryCorps is in St. George. will be until June 1st. And we'd love to have you have an opportunity there. And you don't have to live in the southern Utah area. A lot of people, as you said, uh, carry your taking vacation uh, to go down, and, and a part of that vacation, uh, they're, they're making reservations at the StoryCorps booth. Let me give you the number, 1-800-850-4406, and that's the number to call to reserve your spot in the StoryCorps booth, 1-800-850-4406. And if we've thoroughly confused you with numbers and such, just uh, you do know the uh, email address, upraxis at gmail.com. Just email me. I'll I'll, I'll get you the information if, if that's a, a, uh, an address that you're familiar with, upraxis at gmail.com. Or go to our website at upr.org. Now, the reservation schedule for Thursday night says you needed to have done that by yesterday, but we'll, we'll take reservations up until tomorrow morning. So. Right. We, we'd love to have you come to that reception. So we'll, we'll waive that RSVP deadline and, uh, and just, just do RSVP to us. Go to the website or, or call our main number. Again, the number for StoryCorps is one 800 850 
1-800-227-0506. So, Carrie, you'll be down there to the reception. Uh, several other mm-hmm. UPR staff members. That's right. Terry Guy, Shalane Smith-Needham will be there. April Ashland, who does our webpage and our social media content, will be there. And our engineer friend, Weller. Um, many of us really uh, taking an opportunity to get to know even better our friends in southern Utah. So we'll see you in St. George on Thursday. See you in St. George. And uh, we're going to take a brief break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the Utah prairie dog. In some areas of the country, other species of prairie dog are considered a pest. They're allowed to be shot. But, of course, the Utah prairie dog is protected as a threatened species under the Endangered Species Act. There's controversy over this. A lawsuit has been filed against the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service on this. There's an organization called People for the Ethical Treatment of Property Owners that's been uh, formed over this. We're going to be talking with uh, Bill Branham of Southern Utah University and Bruce Hughes, who's a landowner and uh, business owner in the Cedar City area, about the Utah prairie dog following the break. My father believed any man that needed a vacation should get a different job. For him, those 110 acres was the whole world. He needed nothing else. Hi, this is Dave Isay, founder of the Public Radio Oral History Project, StoryCorps. Remember an important person in your life when our mobile recording booth comes to town. StoryCorps will be in St. George, Utah throughout the month of May. To reserve your spot, visit upr.org. Are you an introvert? At least one-third of the people we know are people who prefer listening to speaking and reading to partying. I'm Tim Fleming. Next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge, Susan Cain tells us how much our extroverted culture undervalues introverts and how much we lose by doing so. It's To the Best of Our Knowledge from PRI, Public Radio International. Sunday mornings at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We uh, make a transition from StoryCorps to Prairie Dogs, where we stay in the southern Utah area. And we're going to be talking about the Utah Prairie Dog. This is different from uh, Prairie Dogs in other parts of the country. Some areas of uh, the country, Prairie Dogs are considered a pest. You are allowed to shoot them, otherwise get rid of them. In southwestern Utah, however, the Utah Prairie Dog is uh, protected as a threatened species under the Endangered Species Act. And uh, we're going to ask you, do you uh, think that uh, they should uh, remain with that protection, or are they a pest? Here's just one uh, typical comment from Pacific Legal Foundation attorney Jonathan Wood. He represents some landowners. He recently said that residents of southwestern Utah are held hostage to a species that has become an out-of-control pest. It's become a problem in, uh, say, the uh, Paragona Cemetery, where prairie dogs have burrowed in there, and the Paragon Airport, where some areas of the airport uh, have problems. And uh, some areas of southwestern Utah have and are planning to uh, erect walls to try to, to deal with this uh, problem. We're going to bring in Utah Prairie Dog Recovery Implementation Program Director Bill Branham. Uh, thank you for joining us. Hello. Good morning, Tom. This Thanks. is Bill Branham. And uh, we have with us uh, Cedar City business owner, accountant, I believe, uh, and landowner Bruce Hughes. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Tom. We're both glad to be here. We appreciate you uh, taking the time to be with us. Uh, so, and I believe you're you're together there at Southern Utah University. Uh, well, we're both together here in uh, Bruce's office. Oh, in Bruce's uh, office. On okay. Speakerphone. Okay. All right. Uh, so I guess we'll have to be somewhat polite with the conversation since you're. You're within reaching distance of each other. Uh, we are. <laughs> let me, uh, Bill Brandon, let me start with you. Give, give us a little bit of a history of the Utah prairie dog and, and how they came to be put on the endangered species list. All right, Tom, if I could give you a little uh, update uh, uh, with UpDrip. UpDrip is the Utah Prairie Dog Recovery Implementation Program, or UpDrip. And that's a public-private partnership focused on recovery of the Utah prairie dog while allowing continued development and economic growth. So UpDrip is an organization of 22 partners. They represent federal, state, county, and local municipalities all working together to try to solve the prairie dog issues. There's two main goals to that. The first goal is to recover the Utah prairie dog so it no longer requires Endangered Species Act protection. So we want to delist the Utah prairie dog by developing 
sustainable populations on protected lands. The second part of the second goal of UPDRIP is to allow existing land uses, development, and economic growth to continue. So there are two major goals to UPDRIP. The reason that uh, we were formed is that uh, the prairie dog is threatened under the Endangered Species Act that the turn of the 20th century, uh, 1900 to 1920, there were about 90,000 prairie dogs, Utah prairie dogs. But by 1973, the numbers had been reduced to about 3,300 through a very effective um, measures of controlling the prairie dog, uh, shooting, poisoning, habitat uh, disruption. Uh, basically, the numbers had declined to the point where they were considered to be uh, predicted to be extinct by the year 2000. So um, after 1973, they were listed on the Endangered Species Act. And today we have about 16,000 adult spring count uh, Utah prairie dogs. But the issue is about 75% of them, or about three quarters, occur on private lands, which are not protected from development. And therefore, we have the issue of uh, prairie dogs and parking lots don't get along very well. Let me turn uh, to uh, our other guest uh, right there, uh, landowner uh, Bruce Hughes. Um, What I'm reading uh, is that a lot of landowners are are thinking that this balance and that the two goals, of course, of UpDrip are are to recover the prairie dog and to allow for existing land uses. They're thinking, I'm gathering, that the, the, that balance is tipped way out of balance. Well, and that's the problem if you're a private, prairie, uh, private landowner who has prairie dogs on your property, is your property is basically disenfranchised. You don't have the ability to develop it. You, uh, you can't sell it because no one wants to buy it uh, because of the stigma of the, the prairie dog and the recovery problems that you have to go through. And so it, it handcuffs a landowner who has prairie dogs on their property, and there is nothing that the, the private uh, property owner sees the government doing on behalf of the, the property owner versus what the government's doing on behalf of the prairie dog. Hmm. Have, have you had problems on your land? Yes, I have, pra- I have prairie dogs on my land. I got... Uh, Uh, heavily involved in the prairie dog issue when I went to the county and asked for a reduction in my property tax values for property tax purposes because I had prairie dogs. Uh, Since I couldn't develop or sell, I thought uh, it made sense that my property was was worth less than a property that didn't have prairie dogs. And I've been in a battle with the county assessor for over six years on the, the property valuation issue for property tax purposes. Hmm. So you're, you're kind of stuck. I'm way beyond stuck, Tom. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. uh, Bill Branham, I'm sure you hear you know, sentiments like this. What, is, is, there, is there a solution short of getting the prairie dog to, uh, to, to being delisted? Well, the uh, solution that the partners feel is most viable is to develop a habitat conservation plan that meets the current needs and represents the science of today. A habitat conservation plan under the Endangered Species Act allows uh, uh, lethal take and other means of removing prairie dogs, nuisance prairie dogs, where they are um, in the way of uh, development. The Iron County has a habitat conservation plan developed uh, in 1998, but it is, um, it's not reflective of the current needs. It's, we all agree that it needs to be revised and a new uh, habitat conservation plan uh, developed for the range, uh, throughout the range of the Utah Prairie Dog. It's, uh, it's beyond the, the, uh, time, the time is now to move towards uh, uh, creating a new habitat conservation plan. And Bruce Hughes, would, would that be helpful, do you think? It would be somewhat helpful. The problem is we have had a recovery program that had its stated goal that the, 
the Utah prairie dog would be delisted by the year 2000. That uh, recovery program existed for almost 30 years, and the year 2000 came and went, and we were not even remotely close. It was over 12 years ago. So now here we are over 40 years later, and we have now a new recovery program that was introduced last year that says that they would like to to have at least another 30 years to recover the prairie dog at a cost of another $106 million of taxpayer money. And what we are saying is uh, you're asking for 72 years to solve this problem and untold millions of dollars of taxpayer money that is a totally unrealistic program to come to private property owners and say this is how we're going to solve the problem. It just shows how ludicrous this entire thing has been over the last several decades. We're talking about the Utah Prairie Dog on this part of the program. You're welcome to join the program. Uh, Some in uh, southwestern Utah think they're an out-of-control pest and uh, that landowners are being held hostage. Uh, Others say, no, the prairie dog does need these protections, and uh, we ought to proceed under those plans. Uh, The number to call is 1-800-826-1495. We'd love to get your perspective, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can join us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Here's a uh, question on our Facebook page. You can join us there as well, Utah Public Radio. And uh, Sarah Penny writes, uh, I'll direct this uh, to Bill Branham, has uh, DNA testing been done to see if they, referring to the Utah prairie dogs, are distinct from the ones in Colorado and elsewhere? Uh, Yes, actually the uh, Iron County and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service have joined together to do some preliminary DNA testing to determine whether the Utah prairie dog is a distinct species from the whitetail prairie dog. And the, the results are preliminary at this time, but there seem to be indications that they, they are different, but uh, the bottom line is that we haven't really got the answer to that yet. So that, that's still up in the air? It's still uh, uh, awaiting further evaluation of the results of the DNA sampling. Now, if that came back saying that the Utah prairie dog is not distinct from these other prairie dogs, that would uh, throw this into a whole different ballgame, wouldn't it? It may. Uh, there are a number of uh, situ- uh, situations that require species protection under the Endangered Species Act, but it certainly would um, uh, indicate that the uh, Utah prairie dog uh, and the whitetail prairie dog have a much wider range than what's currently considered uh, the home range of the Utah prairie dog. Now, who makes these decisions? Is it the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service? U.S. Fish and Wildlife mm-hmm. Service is the major player in that decision. What would it? What will it take uh, in terms of numbers or, or other criteria for the Utah prairie dog to be, you know, taken off threatened uh, status? Well, we think this is a very important thing. The recovery plan that was uh, uh, finalized last year identifies uh, criteria, five criteria for delisting, and we're moving steadily ahead on meeting those criteria. There are three recovery units, three areas that are considered uh, recovery units under the plan, and each of those units would needs to identify 5,000 protected acres, 5,000 protected acres, and 2,000 Utah prairie dogs in each one of the uh, uh, recovery units. If we meet those criteria, we're well on our way to protecting the habitat and the numbers of dogs that would provide for a sustainable population. These uh, lands are looked at being uh, almost exclusively public lands, although uh, conservation easements on private lands would be counted towards meeting those goals. So I believe relocation is, is a big part of this, isn't it? Relocation plays a major role in it, where we have conflicts such as the Cedar City Golf Course and in other areas, we can trap those dogs, translocate them out to 
public lands or, uh, where they can uh, be uh, established populations in a protected status and um, work towards recovery. Let me turn back to Bruce Hughes. Um, I, I don't know if you are affiliated with uh, th this group, calling themselves uh, people for the ethical treatment of property owners. I'm a member, yes. Okay. Uh, by the way, great marketing name. It's uh, that's that's <laughs> that's, that's it's, it's got a hook to it. Um, so the, the Petpo is suing the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. What uh, uh, your understanding of that that lawsuit? What, you're you're trying to speed up the process. What are you trying to get done? Well, there's a couple of things we're trying to get done. Number one, we think this will speed up the process because it brings the issue into a very public arena, and public arenas help. Uh, that's what helped get the fencing at the Paraguna Cemetery and the Paraguay Airport was public pressure, and so we think that that's going to be a benefit. But the the, the underlying uh, concept of the lawsuit is that the federal government does not have control over the Utah Prairie Dog because it is not a federal issue, it's a state issue. And as a state issue, we should have local control over that, and we believe that locally we can recover the, the Prairie Dog more efficiently and quicker because we have greater motivation locally to do it than the federal government does, and that's the whole basis of the lawsuit. That under the, the provisions of the Constitution, uh, there's no economic benefit to the Utah Prairie Dog, so it doesn't fall under the Commerce Clause. And also, it is uh, found only in the state of Utah, and so it does not come under interstate commerce, which are the provisions that the federal government says that it has control. Uh, and if we can show that that, that that is not the case and gain local control of the Utah Prairie Dog, we think we can solve the problem more efficiently, quicker, cheaper, and everyone's going to be happy and they're happier in the process. Uh, Bill Branham, I, uh, as director of the uh, of UpDrip, Utah Prairie Dog Recovery Implementation Program, I don't know if you can say anything, but what's your, what's your take on, on this My lawsuit? My take is that uh, we're very, uh, that UpDrip partners would be very interested in hearing how the uh, uh, program would operate any differently if it were under control of, uh, of other entities. And if we could make things happen faster, more efficiently, we want to institute that right now yeah. with the, the way things are. We are operating as, uh, we are, UpDrip is doing everything possible within the existing laws, within the ex existing laws, to encourage delisting. We're working as fast and as diligently as possible within the existing law. So uh, if the law changes, then we may have some other marching orders, but uh, uh, we would like to hear how things could be different. Well, Tom, what, one thing on that that we said uh, several years ago when UpDrip was first formed was that we, we would be willing to put uh, citizen volunteer groups together to help translocate these Utah Prairie Dogs to these recovery areas, and our, uh, our offer has been rejected uh, under the premise that, well, you have to know what you're doing in order to translocate these things. Well, there's a guy up in Wyoming who has a, a vacuum system, and he sucks the little buggers out of their holes with a vacuum and translocates them that way, and he can do hundreds in a day and last year, we're patting ourselves on the back because we translocated, what, 1,500. 1,500 dogs, which was an absolute record number. And we're saying 1,500. Why aren't we translocating 3,000, 4,500, 5,000? We have the ability to do this, and yet we're seeing this uh, bureaucratic method of translocating these dogs, which is uh, out of the, the ice age and just simply not getting the job done. I, uh, I hear you. I'm, I'm back on vacuum system. Is, <laughs> is, is, <laughs> and I hear PETA's heads exploding. What, is this, uh, is that humane? The uh, vacuum system has worked on uh, other species. Uh, it is a, employed for pocket gophers and other uh, burrowing animals where they uh, 
that can be removed that way. Now, these other spe species are not protected under the Endangered Species Act. That's the mm. difference. Mm. And under that, uh, uh, that uh, law, we are um, prohibited from harassing, killing, um, uh, doing other means that are uh, detrimental to the species. So vacuuming has not been determined to be a, a compatible practice so far. But also one thing I want to make uh, very quickly is that the Utah prairie dog is representative of this uh, uh, sagebrush steppe ecosystem. They're a player in the ecosystem that also supports badgers, eagles, many other birds of prey. And uh, it's it, it, the Utah prairie dog is, is often looked at as a keystone species that represents this ecosystem. So we're also looking at the health of the ecosystem. Now that may be a very fuzzy concept, but it's very important for ecologists looking at the sustainability over time. Um, I, I want to ask about this uh, fence. There, there was one built in, was it Paragona, and then there's another one proposed, maybe, for, for Parowan. I'm reading the Wall Street Journal, by the way, this has gotten national press, that the, the, the previous one, I guess, maybe worked for a while, but then, then the dogs returned. Well, what they've done in Paragona at the cemetery is they've actually put a fence around the cemetery to keep the dogs out, and then uh, the city of Paragona has the legal right now to take prairie dogs outside of the uh, cemetery. If, the, if any prairie dogs are found within the cemetery, they can have them killed and removed. At the Parowan Airport, the problem we have there is obviously a health and safety issue, when uh, Governor Herbert came down to a meeting in uh, Parowan, they wouldn't allow his plan, plane to land at the Parowan Airport because of the safety hazard. He had to land in Cedar City and drive to Parowan, uh, just highlighting the fact that, that this is a serious issue. So they were able to do a fence around the Parowan Airport. Interestingly, it's a three-sided fence uh, because apparently we've been able to train the prairie dogs not to go around to the fourth side and get onto the to, onto the runway area, but if they do, we can kill them. Hmm. Uh, we just and have Tom, one yes. Last go ahead. Part on that, this uh, represents where these partners, particularly the Fish and Wildlife Service, have tried to work with the community to solve the problems and actually changed the regulations as they relate to uh, cemeteries and airports to uh, allow for. Uh, taking a direct action to protect uh, the, the, um, the sanctity of, of these areas. Hmm. Now let me say, Tom, I believe uh, that updrip has been a very positive step forward in this entire process. It's unfortunate it wasn't done years ago, but let me just say that uh, the PETPO group uh, heartily supports updrip in their coordination of all of these efforts. And uh, that's probably a good place to leave it. We are out of time. We've been talking with uh, Bruce Hughes, who's a landowner in, in this uh, area and a member of uh, Pat Poe. Bruce Hughes, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Tom. And Uptrip Director Bill Branham has been with us. Thank you. You bet, Tom. Thank you. And much more good information. Uh, you just uh, just uh, Google uh, Utah Prairie Dogs. You can go to Uptrip's website. Uh, Pet Poe has a Facebook uh, site as well. And uh, coming up tomorrow on the program, uh, Mark Maurer joins us. He is uh, uh, from the Sentencing Project. Several years ago, he wrote a very important book, had a, had a, a big effect. It was called The Race to Incarcerate. Now seeking a new audience, he's out with a uh, collaboration with a graphic uh, novelist. And uh, Race to Incarcerate is uh, reissued in uh, graphic novel form. We'll have Mark Maurer along with uh, the graphic novelist. That's coming up tomorrow on Access Utah. For producer Addison Pace, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today.